Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. It is our great privilege to welcome the Right Honourable Theresa May to King's this evening. She's only the second woman to serve as UK Prime Minister, as well as the second woman to hold the post of Home Secretary, a role she held for longer than anyone else in more than 60 years. So we're delighted to host Mrs May for a conversation with Julia Gillard about her experiences, the highest levels of politics, the obstacles she faced, and what we can do to improve gender equality and women's political representation. Over to you. Theresa and I are going to have a conversation about uh, life and being women in politics. Uh, But I wanted to uh, start, uh, Theresa, with something uh, deeply personal that you might find a little bit upsetting, which is I'd like you to share with the group how you pulled up after the Aussie women cricket team smashed England. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to say on that? (laughs) Well, all all I'll say is I've just been to, on my first visit to Australia, I went to Melbourne, the first place I went to was Melbourne Cricket Ground, um, and I went to the Sport Museum there, and they had uh, an interactive game that you played which tested your reaction speed, Um, and I did that, and next series, I'm fielding in the slips. <laughs> right, you heard it here first. We've made news tonight. Our job here is done. Um, but you have uh, been passionate about cricket for a lifetime. You've been passionate about politics for almost a lifetime. Uh, you got the political bug when you were 12 or 13 and decided that you wanted to be a Conservative Member of Parliament. Now, that's a little bit different to my journey. I was, uh, it took me more time to work out I wanted to go into politics But our careers in some ways have been the same. Yet at the end of being Prime Minister, I decided to exit Parliament. You've decided to stay. Can you explain that decision and what more is it that you want to achieve as a parliamentarian? Yes, I mean, I I suppose, and in a sense, it it is unusual for a former Prime Minister to stay on. Um, When I went into the House of Commons, I was put on the front bench a year after I, I was first elected. So for the vast majority of my time in the House of Commons, when I came to step down as PM, I had been at, if you like, the top level. Um, And I was in the shadow cabinet two years into going into Parliament. So, and and I've always really valued the constituency part of the job of being a Member of Parliament. So I'd only been on the back benches for one year. So actually, it has given me the opportunity to be on the back benches, to contribute to Parliament in a different way, um, to choose the subjects I want to speak on rather than you know, having to speak on certain, on certain subjects. 
Um, and it's given me the opportunity to see through some of the things that I started as Prime Minister. There is still one or two to do. But, for example, the Domestic Abuse Act, which I started the work on the Domestic Abuse Act, and that is now on the statute book. Um, I'm waiting for the Mental Health Act. We need a new Mental Health Act to come through. Um, but there are still things there that I want to uh, achieve in Parliament. And I'm able to focus on some issues um, rather better than you, you can do when, as you know, when you're Prime Minister, you've got to do the whole lot. And you are taking the opportunity to deliver the occasional zinger in question time, too. So <laughs> <I acknowledge that. laughs> talk about some of the policies and big changes that you made um, in your political journey uh, in, in the many roles you played, but including as Prime Minister. But I want to start with that really at the very beginning. I mean, you put yourself forward for pre-selection on multiple occasions before you were selected for a seat. Um, I did the same. Um, took me 10 years to get pre-selected and one failed Senate attempt, so I know what that feels like. Um, you've said publicly that when those rejections happened, you always said to yourself, I'm not going to take this in the spirit of thinking it's because I'm a woman, I'm going to use the feedback to improve my performance. But when you had the power in your hands to make a difference, when you were chairing the Conservative Party, you actually got in an independent psychologist to look at the unconscious bias that there were you know, in the processes. So you must have had the sense something wasn't being fair for women. What, what was that sense? And do you think it's changed? Yes, I mean, I suppose, just by definition, the numbers showed that there was a problem there with the, with the selection. Some, our selection process, we needed to change something. So it was, that's why we brought in the independent um, occupational psychiatrist, looked at the whole process, made a number of changes to it. And... What was happening, I think, was that there was a very sort of traditional model of what an MP should be like, but how an MP should be able to act. So the great thing that everybody sort of put most marks by, if you like, was a great tub-thumping speech. You had to be able to go out there and really give it to them. Now, of course you have to do that sometimes in politics, and women are capable of doing that, just as men are. But actually, as a Member of Parliament, you also need to be able to listen. You need to be able to stand at the school gate and hear what people are saying. And actually, by and large, the women are rather better at doing that than the men. So we had to have, we changed our selection process into one that balanced the different skills. You, like, initially just recognised that being a Member of Parliament requires a whole range of skills and then tried to, to um, ensure that we were testing those skills. As you said, Julia, I didn't feel when I went through the selection process that uh, it was because I was a woman. And I, I almost think if you allow yourself to think that, you're kind of playing their game. Um, and so it's important to, to look at your own performance and try and judge your own performance. But I knew of women who had really difficult times in the selection process. So and, and something had to change. And playing their game in what sense? Well, it, it sort of... Um, how can I put it? It, it, it if, they, if they sort of see the woman as not capable of being a Member of Parliament, and if the woman then feels that she's been rejected because she's a woman, it sort of somehow feeds into that image, I right. think. Right. 
right, I understand. Do you think, uh, how much do you think the bias is still there? I mean, when you do the, the statistics, I mean, in Australia, here in the UK, it is true to say that there are more women sent to the parliament by the Labor parties, though, of course, uh, the easy rejoinder here in the UK is to say Labor's never been led by a woman, whereas, of course, the Tories have been led by you and by Margaret Thatcher. But, you know, there's still a lesser number of women. Why, why do you think that is? Well, of course, what happened here in the UK significantly in 1997 was the Labour Party took a deliberate decision of allocating certain constituencies as all-women shortlists, and that got their 101 women in, and that was that huge step change. Um, I'm pleased to say we've now gone... We had 13 in 97. We've now got 88. So we've improved, but I think we would all say that on both sides there's still more to, more to do because the overall percentage is about 35% women in the House of Commons now. Um, I think that there's, I guess, from a Conservative point of view, there's perhaps more likely to be a more traditional approach and more traditional view as to what an MP should, uh, should look like. But I would argue that from a Conservative point of view, we're about opportunity. We're about enabling people to blossom and be the best they can be. And actually that should be as good for men and, uh, and women um, and uh, with, no, uh, with no difference. So it has, but it has taken some time, and we still need to keep our foot on the accelerator. I think this is the... the I co-founded an organise with Anne Jenkins, an organisation for women to win in the Conservative Party, which um, mentors, um, provides training to women who are standing as candidates, helps them, takes them, guides them through the selection process. Um, when we founded it, we were looking for the day when women to win would not need to exist. But sadly, it still does need to exist. And I fear it will need to exist for some while to come until we get to the genuine position where people aren't thinking this is a woman in front of me or a man in front of me, but this is an individual. What is their skill set? Do they, you know, are they going to make the best member of parliament? And, you know, in terms of how people see men and women as leaders, I mean, you've... Uh, you famously said that the stereotypical um, image of a man was a, of a politician was a man with a wife and a Labrador, you know, all of the sort of uh, stereotypical images. But if we dig a little bit deeper than that, I mean, there is something going on, isn't there, with um, images of power. We've been living through this era of very hypermasculine populist politics. I'm thinking here of Donald Trump, uh, President Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, and now when we look at the imagery around uh, President Putin and that kind of hyper-masculinity, what, what do you think is going on? I mean, it's clearly not all comparable, but there are democracies that are deliberately choosing that image of leadership. Why do you think that there's an attraction to that? And if we're in the business of opportunity for all, how do we diversify images of leadership so it's not that one template? I think there is a... Um I would say, a real challenge, a problem in politics today around the world, which is this sense of it's a world of strong men. It's, it's a world of absolutism. Either you're 100% with me or you're 100% against me. And actually, in politics, as in everyday life, you need to be willing to compromise, to come to the, the, sometimes to come to the solutions that can be put into practice. Um, and I think that that absolutism may be driven by a whole range of things. There's the, the, the populist politics um, movement, if you like to call it such, that you've referred to, Julia. 
I think that social media plays a part in this, which has led to, I think it's been part of what's led to a more aggressive, vitriolic um, sort of debate in politics today. Uh, and these things all reinforce each other. And so you get to this situation where that sense of somebody who is perhaps more thoughtful, wants to consider carefully and work out ways of putting things into place that actually benefit the majority and are really good overall and can be delivered, are sort of um, put to one side for those who just say, right, that's it. That's how it's going to be. And we are seeing today, sadly, where strong men can take us. And uh, having mentioned President Putin, it would be remiss of me not to give you the opportunity to um, give us your reflections on the Ukraine. I'm sure, like everybody in this audience, you are watching with horror the images that we're seeing. It, it, it is absolutely horrific. And I think we should remind ourselves that it is an illegal invasion, an illegal war. Vladimir Putin has brought war to mainland Europe, but it's not his first invasion of Ukraine. Of course, he invaded Ukraine in 2014 when he took Crimea. Um, and uh, he has, I think he has underestimated, significantly underestimated, the desire of Ukrainians to be free. He cannot understand that. He still has the image of the Soviet Union. Um, he cannot understand this sense that people have. But the, I think the huge thing one sees from everybody in Ukraine is that they want to keep their country. They want that freedom. They want that independence. And I think that this is um, what we're dealing with here is not just defending Ukraine, but actually defending the very essence of democracy itself. And I think there has been a concern that Many people have felt that perhaps the West has been less prominent in defending its values in recent years. One could talk for a very long time as to why that, that might be. Um, I think President Putin was an opportunist. He, uh, uh, a lot of eyes were on China. He underestimated the response of Ukraine and probably underestimated the response of the West as they're now, uh, Russia is now experiencing and the economic sanctions to be put in place. And having dealt with him personally, has any of this surprised you? Um, I think we were, we were all surprised by the uh, dimensions of the military action taken, but uh, personality trait-wise, has any of it surprised you? Well, of course, I think here in the UK, we're perhaps less surprised at anything that Vladimir Putin will do, given that he, you, Russia used a nerve agent on the streets of one of our cities in an attempt to kill two people. And sadly, one British citizen lost her life as a result of that. Uh, so he, the fact that Russia has no compunction whatsoever in um, using a chemical weapon on a street like that. And we've seen other, I mean, we had the Litvinenko issue here. We've seen the Alexander Navalny incident. I don't think anybody can be surprised at anything. Uh, no, uh, it's uh, absolutely horrifying and, and terrific to have your insights on it. Um, 
as we think about this theme of perceptions of leadership and uh, perceptions of male leadership and female leadership, I think one thing that has always struck me as a woman in the public eye is that emotion is read differently uh, from male and, and female leaders. So, you know, an angry man is very likely to be viewed as strong, an angry woman is likely to be viewed as hysterical. Um, a man who's been sort of moved to tears by a particular event is viewed as showing his compassionate side. Uh, a woman moved to tears is at risk of people saying that she's lost it, that she can't take it, that the pressure's broken her. Um, and, you know, you and I uh, have lived through some of this. Uh, I watched uh, the day that you gave your final address as Prime Minister and there was just a, a small catch in your voice in, as you delivered the last few words. Um, and this was reported as you sort of sobbing. Um, and uh, I, I know from talking to your uh, media people that uh, in the lead-up uh, to you um, exiting as Prime Minister, they would regularly take calls from journalists saying, you know, is she going to cry? When is she going to cry? You know, um, so this sort of uh, bookie approach to on which day is she going to shed a tear. Can you, can you talk to us about how that made you feel and, and what that is telling us about gender equality and perceptions of female leadership? I think it's telling us there isn't much gender equality in people's perceptions <laughs> of leadership, I'm afraid. Um, and, I mean, it is very difficult. It's absolutely true. And there was this sort of a lot of, um, in a lot of interviews, people wanted me, almost wanted me to say that I'd cried at various points on various issues. And yet if I'd said that, it would in, it have been absolutely that, oh, you know, woman can't take it. Absolutely, you know, what's she doing there? She obviously hasn't got the guts for it, hasn't got the uh, ability to do the job. It, it's a bit like um, there was a book written um, by Alison Pearson some years ago with a character called Kate Reardon, who was in uh, A Businesswoman. Um, and uh, I forget the title of the book, but it sort of ran through various things. It, it um, and it had her at a point where she was in a meeting at business and she wanted to leave early to go to her, it was either her children's play, school play or um, parents' evening. And she was sitting there thinking, if I leave early now to do that, they are going to say, typical woman. If one of the fathers left to go to watch his children in the school play, what a wonderful <laughs> father. So it's not just in politics. Sadly, we haven't quite broken down all those barriers and those sort of attitudes. But it is, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, you have to, as a woman leader, you're walking that sort of tightrope, if you like. Um, if you're too emotional, you can't hack it. Um, if you're not emotional, then you're, what sort of woman are you? Yes. And on the what sort of woman are you, uh, both... Uh, both of us, I think, were very conscious of that tightrope, um, and I, I was certainly conscious of it on the, the final uh, press conference I gave as Prime Minister, where I was absolutely determined uh, to uh, not cry or to not look like I was anywhere near crying, just to make sure none of the bastards got that satisfaction. <laughs> uh, channeling my inner Australian, you don't have to match that language. Um, but, uh, you know, it, the, but the effect of it then, when you're calm, you're controlled, when you've read the brief, when you're across the facts, when you're sort of focusing as much as you can to get it out as accurately as you can, 
Um, then the criticism comes, uh, you're robotic, devoid of emotion. Uh, you were referred to constantly as the Maybot, and I didn't um, get a, a nickname like that, but robotic was a word very, very routinely used. And looking back on it now, I can't even disaggregate in my own head um, how much of that uh, is, you know, because I was being so cautious about getting things right, how much of it is this you know, narrow pathway women have got to weave between sort of strength and empathy, and if you fall off one side or the other, you're in a lot of trouble. How do you reflect back on those things now in terms of your own performance? Yes, I mean, and, and I think the answer is it's a mixture of, of those things that leads to that. And it's, um, I suppose what I found frustrating about it was from my point of view, I was always just trying to as you've just said, be as accurate as possible, be um, uh, sort of as clear as possible, um, not sort of try to fudge issues, but, but be careful so you didn't give people the wrong impression one way or another. Um, and to me, that was about being more professional, actually, in the, in the job. But somehow, um, a lot of people didn't want the professional. Uh, they, they, they wanted something else there. And therefore, if you didn't give that what I suppose they would say was the sort of human side of it, um, then the, the robotic, the Maybot, that sort of um, um, description was used. But the trouble is, as we've just been discussing, if you gave the kind of human side of it, when you're a woman, then that tends to be pounced on far more and not seen as, as the positive that, uh, that it should be, um, or that it could be or would be in the case sometimes of some of the, some of the men. So, looking back on it, should I have perhaps cracked a few more jokes with some of the media sometimes? But then, actually, there was a bit of me that thinks, well, if you do that, are they going to misinterpret that? How are they going to, you know, you're, you're constantly thinking this through in case what comes out is completely different to what you, the way you'd intended it. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, a joke that went badly would be. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and I think one thing people don't appreciate from the outside so much is uh, often these days in press conferences, actually, no one's looking back at you. So, uh, you know, because all of the journos are hunched over their phones because they're waiting for the latest flash, you know, so yes. that they can uh, get you on the grab. You know, did you know 20 seconds ago one of your ministers said X? Well, obviously I don't because I've <laughs> been standing here for more than 20 seconds. But, um, uh, you know, that's what they're looking for. So you're actually delivering lines to just a sea of bowed heads. So it's, um, it's, it's hard to get a bounce off it in a, in a human sense. Um, I want to take you now to some of the policy work uh, that you did. Um, you, uh, neither of us, uh, have had to personally manage uh, work and family life and, and having children and careers, but literally billions of women around the world do, including uh, the women in this audience. Um, and we're all trying to strive for the public policy choices and the corporate choices that would make that, the university choices, that would make that easier. Um, as Home Secretary, you put in place the right to request flexible work in the UK. Can you talk to us about what motivated you around that and how you're thinking now about the world of flexible work, given the pandemic has taught us that there are all of these uh, different ways of working than we saw before? Yes, I mean, it, it was talking to women um, when I was 
doing the sort of policy role. I was Minister for Women and Qualities at various entities in opposition and in government. This whole issue of caring responsibilities was constantly coming up as one of the, the, the um, challenges that women particularly had in relation to managing the workplace. And that's what led into the concept of the right to request flexible working, to just give that ability to be able to manage your time somewhat better with other responsibilities that you might have. And a lot of women today find themselves not just with childcare responsibilities, but sometimes with elderly parents' caring responsibilities as well. They're sandwiched between those two. So that flexible working was, uh, and the right to request it was an attempt to, to um, find a way to give some ability for that to take place. What was interesting about flexible working is that very often, at a very senior level in business, um, managers would recognise the importance of it, but middle management did not like it. It was middle management that found it most difficult. And I think it was because often for middle management, presence in the office was their way of judging your output rather than actually having to judge the output on its own sake. So if you're in the office, you were working. The fact that you might actually be flexibly working, be at home and produce as much and as good an output as in the office was sort of, they found difficult to, to comprehend. The, what has happened, of course, in the pandemic is that's turned it all on its head because now everybody has found that they can, unless they're doing a very practical, physical job, they're able to, to work at home. I always say to people, when I was, uh, when I was a child, Zoom was an ice lolly. And now it's a major mean of means of international communication. Um, but the, 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 there's a kind of, so there's a positive to this. It can be done. So hopefully more managers will recognise now, and, and I think we'll, we'll see flexibility being offered for, for all in a way that it wasn't previously but there's a, there's a potential negative here for women, I think, which we have to beware, which is that if more women use that than the men, mm. um, and so more of the women are not physically present in offices, being seen by senior management, able to have the conversations in, around the coffee machine, um, then there's a potential that they will lose out. And um, I'm, I'm, can I tell you a wonderful story about a woman I met actually in Australia yes. who uh, worked for a company. She, she worked out the time that the chief executive arrived in the office uh, every Monday morning. And so she made sure that she uh, got there a little before that time. She waited by the lifts until she saw the chief executive walk in. And she pressed the lift button, and lo and behold, they always went up in the lift together. Um, and her career blossomed. <laughs> but that's about women actually seeing the opportunities to make the most of that physical presence. And I think um, there's a danger if we see a lot of women rightfully doing the flexible working and seeing that as a way to better manage their responsibilities but perhaps forgetting that uh, out of sight can be out of mind. Yeah, this is actually a big stream of research work for us at the Global Institute now, how do we harness the possibilities of virtual work without this downside? 
And we've also spent quite a lot of time on gender pay gap reporting. We've been doing comparative studies. When I say we, I actually mean the, the research staff. I don't do anything um, uh, except, um, uh, except bask in their glory. But uh, uh, the researchers have been doing a lot of uh, comparative work on, on gender pay gap reporting and what it looks like in different countries and how good it is. Uh, but with the introduction of it, can you tell us what motivated you there and how hard a fight was it? It was quite, look, I'm going to be entirely honest. Initially, I had to be persuaded about the reporting because it, um, I suppose I, I always thought overall figures were fine, but actually a, a concern as to was this going to be too difficult for businesses to actually be able to produce these figures in a way that was going to be meaningful. Um, but we worked it through and we found a way of doing that. And it, I think, has been incredibly important. And of course... You know, what was the organisation that hit the headlines for its uh, huge gender pay gap? The BBC. Um, so it, it shone a light on things that nobody had even thought it would shine a light on, I think. So it was, um, but it was quite, a ba was quite a battle to get it through. Um, but it, I think it has been proved to be right. I wanted to go further and introduce ethnicity pay gap reporting. Um, and we had that sort of in train. Sadly, it hasn't been followed through. But I will still press on that. And actually, I think these days, a lot of businesses are further ahead than governments on some of these issues. Because I think a lot of businesses recognise that there is now a generation of young people, not just women, but young men and young women coming through into the workplace, who are requiring, they want companies to be providing these opportunities, the flexible working, the diversity, and so, and, uh, so forth. Um, to be the employers. I, I was interested in one of the points that, that Kelly made, the importance of employers in a lot of these issues. But there are employers out there who are starting to recognise that. Sometimes it takes governments a little time to catch up with them. I want to take you now to a few other pieces of research which are well known in the gender field. Uh, there's good research showing that women face a glass, glass cliff which means that they're most likely to get opportunities to lead in the midst of a crisis. And there's also research that shows we are suckers for confident, charismatic men, that people assume that they will be good leaders, even though confidence and charisma are not correlated with positive leadership outcomes. <laughs> if that seemed right to you. <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> how, can I, uh, how can I put this? Look, I, I, I think it is, it, it's, it's interesting. The world in which we live today is much more a world of celebrity and a world where personality is sort of valued. I think actually for most voters, they just want their politicians to understand what they need and get on and deliver for them and get on and do the job. Um, but that's, in, a, in today's world, that's not what sort of, fits in an overall sense, and that sense of, of charisma is, is, um, is writ large in people's expectations today. Um, I think that you're absolutely right, of course, women often find themselves in leadership roles at times of, uh, times of you said crisis, but times of great challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Can't think of anybody who's found herself in that <laughs> But, um, but uh, and it's the same in businesses. 
There's, there's a kind of, often there's a sort of, oh, the business is going under. What's, what, what have we tried? We've tried this. We've, oh, let's try a woman. We've <laughs> not done that one before. So um, it's, uh, it, there's an element of that in, in business and in, in politics, I, I think. But I actually think for the electors, they just want politicians who are going to deliver for them, understand what the issues are, find ways through them, and, and find ways to improve their life, which is what we are all in politics for. been listening to a podcast of one's own with julia gillard from the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london if you want to learn more about our work visit the global institute for women's leadership website and sign up to our updates this podcast has been produced by connie blafari and james miller with king's online with editing by nick hilton if you liked what you've been listening to we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider we're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.